Christian now to Revelation 1. Well, a couple of weeks ago when we started our journey through Revelation, we started with a summary of the whole book, and I just want to remind you of that summary about what is going on in the book of Revelation to keep this in front of our eyes, uh, or at least in, in, uh, in, in our ears. Uh, Jesus reveals to his churches God's sovereign plan of judgment and redemption culminating in his second coming. So they would persevere in following him through this present evil world, enduring tribulation, resisting temptation, and bearing witness before the nations until the day God judges evil and Jesus leads them to victory and eternal life with him in the new creation. That's a lot, but this is kind of an overview of what is going on in the book of Revelation, what it's about. That that was what we looked at a a couple weeks ago. And then last week, we started into the text of Revelation, and and we saw this promise in verse 3. Glance with me there, Revelation 1-3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Our aim in this series is that we would hear and keep the words that are in the book of Revelation. Uh, That's our goal. We want to hear and keep these words about God's sovereign plan. We want to hear and keep these words about persevering and following Jesus. We want to hear and keep these words about the victory of Christ. And today specifically, uh, that's our goal, to hear and keep Revelation 1, 4 through 8. And uh, as we Aim to hear and keep Revelation 1, 4, 3. I'm going to begin by reading aloud the words of this prophecy, as it were. And uh, if you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to our church. Revelation 1, starting in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia... Grace to you and peace from him who was and who, or who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who were before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. The more I know our congregation as a pastor, 
the more I come to the pulpit with a burden for our congregation. Especially when I know what kind of a week some of you had. I I come to this preaching moment with a burden to say what I believe you need to hear. I I look out and, you know, I, I see, man... Colton needs encouragement. I want to speak those words of encouragement. You know, Marty needs instruction. I want to speak those words of instruction. Brandon needs a stern rebuke. And so I want to give him the rebuke that he, yeah. The more more I know our church, the more I, I have this burden to speak what you need to hear wherever you are at this time. Well, the same can be said for Jesus and the churches who received revelation. In chapters 2 and 3, we're even going to hear Jesus say to each of the seven churches, I know, I know, I know your works. I know your suffering. I know the environment that you're in that is difficult to follow Christ in. I know, I know, Jesus knows his churches, and he knows what we are going through. He knows what we need to hear. And and what we see in our passage today and, and throughout Revelation is that what these churches needed the most was a vision of a big God. What these churches needed the most was a high view of Almighty God. In their suffering, in their temptation, in their endurance, they needed to know that God is on His throne. They needed to know that God is sovereign. They needed to know that God loves them. And they needed to know that God was moving every detail of history toward his glorious purpose. And this is what we need as well. This is what we need. So as we walk through this passage, may we behold the God of Revelation. Behold the God of Revelation. This morning we're going to dive into these opening verses where John paints this portrait of the God of Revelation. And together we're going to behold who this God is. Now, if we are going to behold this God, the God of Revelation, there's something that we need to understand first about this book. If we're going to behold the God of Revelation... First, we need to receive Revelation as a letter. We need to receive Revelation as a letter. If you will, look with me at verse 4. John addresses his audience here in this first part of verse 4. And he says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. Now, if you've read many of the other letters of the New Testament, you probably recognize um, this as a kind of the standard opening of a letter 
in the New Testament. You have author, recipient, greeting. And, and what this shows us is that Revelation is a letter. Now, I used to think that uh, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation were seven letters and that the rest of the book was something else. But if you actually look at how John begins Revelation and also how he ends Revelation, it's clear that he actually meant for this whole book of Revelation to be considered as one letter. Now, to be fair, uh, Revelation is more than a letter and it's not your typical letter. Um, you might remember if you were here last week, um, we said that Revelation actually has three genres that it belongs to. It's a prophecy. Um, it's written in apocalyptic style with images and symbols. Uh, and it's packaged as a letter. Prophecy, apocalypse, letter. And you might think that, you know, that some work with three genres sounds like a really foreign concept, but just as an analogy, think about the TV show, The Office. Now, you may or may not realize that The Office has three genres. It's a workplace story at its core, but it's a workplace story sold, uh, told in the style of a comedy. And it's packaged as a documentary. It has three genres. Well, similarly, Revelation at its core is a prophecy but it's in apocalyptic style, and it's packaged as a letter. So um, this is how Revelation has come to us. It's written as a letter. Um, it's more than a letter, but it is a letter. And it's important that we recognize and receive Revelation as a letter because letters, more than any other type of genre, are tailored to their audience. And that means that we should interpret Revelation as being first and foremost, for the seven churches who lived in Asia Minor at the end of the first century. In other words, if we are interpreting Revelation in a way that those seven churches wouldn't understand, we are not on the right track in interpreting Revelation. We need to interpret it in a way that those first hearers would have understood it. At the same time, though, Revelation is not just a letter for them. Revelation is for us, too. And I say that because of that term, seven churches. And we'll see that over and over. Seven churches. Now, it obviously refers to those seven historical churches in Asia Minor and Ephesus and Laodicea and all the rest. Um, but remember, because Revelation is apocalyptic, we should expect it to be symbolic. The number seven is an important symbol in Revelation. It signifies wholeness or perfection. So seven churches we ought to take not only as literal, but also symbolic of the whole church for all time. So we should interpret Revelation in a way that the original readers would have understood, but we should also understand that it is a message for our local church as well. Uh, and receiving Revelation as a letter is helpful for understanding the whole book, but it's especially helpful for hearing and keeping our passage today because it, it seems that here is how these opening verses came to be. Jesus showed John these visions, 
And then he instructed John to write down what he saw and send it to these seven churches. So after seeing all these visions, John sits down to write his letter, and he gets to the opening, and he says, okay, well, how am I going to describe God in this opening? And he remembers what he saw and what he heard, and he says, that's how I'll describe God in the opening. And so really what we have in these opening verses is a portrait of the God of Revelation, the God as, God as he revealed himself to John and as he will continue to reveal himself all throughout this book. So as we seek to hear and keep this passage, let's now behold the God of Revelation together. First, behold the God of grace and peace We see this in verses 4 and 5. Look again at how John opens this letter in verses 4 and 5. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Now, hear what God is saying to you in these verses. Grace to you. Peace to you. This is not an empty sentiment. This is not a mere formality. The God of Revelation has actual grace and peace that he wants to bestow upon those who follow the Lamb. This is grace and peace for you. Grace is God's favor for those who don't deserve it. And peace is the good life that comes from having a mended relationship with the God who we once rebelled against. William Hendrickson puts it this way, Peace is the reflection of the smile of God in the heart of the believer who has been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. God has grace and peace for you. God wants to give you grace to endure in following Jesus. God wants to give you grace to resist the temptation to be seduced by the world. God wants to give you peace in the midst of your suffering. God wants to give you peace even when it feels like the world around you is falling apart. The God of Revelation has grace and peace for you. Who is this God who wants to give us grace and peace? He is the triune God. One God in three persons, Father, Spirit, and Son. God the Father is described in verse 4 as him who is and who was 
and who is to come. The Father as God is eternal. He is infinite in time. No one but God has existed eternally. Everything else that exists is an effect that has a cause. Only God is the uncaused cause. He is, he was, he is to come. And if you belong to Jesus, the eternal Father has grace and peace for you. Here is this God who stands outside of time, who has always existed, who always will exist. He's the author of history. He can write whatever story about time he wants to write. And what has he chosen to do? To reach into this time to you and give you grace and peace. Behold the God of Revelation. God the Holy Spirit is described in verse 4 as the seven spirits who are before the Father's throne. Now, there is only one Holy Spirit, not seven. But, as I said before, the number seven is symbolic in Revelation. So calling the Holy Spirit the seven spirits uh, isn't speaking literally, but it's speaking to the perfection of the Holy Spirit. And not only that, it also speaks to the omnipresence of the Holy Spirit. Here in this passage, the Holy Spirit is called the seven spirits who are before the Father's throne. Uh, later on in Revelation 5, 6, we'll see that he is depicted as uh, the Lamb's seven horns, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The Holy Spirit is both present in heaven and present in all the earth, sent out to dwell in the hearts of those who follow the Lamb. God has grace and peace for you, but he doesn't deliver that grace and peace impersonally from far away. God hand delivers grace and peace to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, enters into the hearts of those who follow the Lamb and hand delivers grace and peace. God's grace and peace come to us, not in a package, but in a person who knows us and loves us and wants to give us what we don't deserve and wants to, us to experience the peace that we have because of the cross of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is present in heaven and he is present in our hearts and so he is able to dispense grace and peace directly to us flowing from the throne of God. Behold, the God of revelation. God the Son, Jesus Christ, is identified with three titles in verse 5. First, he is the faithful witness. Now, all throughout Revelation, we're going to see that followers of the Lamb are called to be faithful witnesses. We are to be steadfast in testifying, as witnesses do, testifying to the truth of God. 
even to the point of death. Well, Jesus is the perfect example of a faithful witness. In his earthly ministry, he was faithful to testify to the truth of God, even to the point of death. Jesus, the perfect faithful witness, has grace and peace for us as we seek to be faithful as his witnesses. He does not ask us to walk a road that he has not already been down. And he enables us to follow him down that road as his faithful witnesses by giving us grace and peace. Second, Jesus is identified as the firstborn of the dead. Jesus was the faithful witness unto death, but then he conquered death. And he rose again as the firstborn of the dead. That, that title, firstborn, means a couple of things. One, it's a title of authority. Jesus didn't just rise from the dead. He also has authority over death. We're going to see next week, later in Revelation 1, he holds the keys to death and Hades. But second, that title, firstborn, means that Jesus is just the first of many to rise from the dead. In the end, all people will be resurrected. And those who trust in Jesus will spend eternity physically present with Jesus. And the firstborn from the dead has grace and peace for us as we persevere in following him, even in the face of death. You know, it's easy for us to think of death as losing. When someone is killed for being a Christian, it certainly feels like the enemy has won. But even when death doesn't come by persecution, death feels like a, a loss. We even use phrases like, he lost his battle with cancer. But the firstborn from the dead shows us that in Christ, death is not a loss. Because he lives, death gives way to victory. You can rest in the grace and peace that come from the firstborn of the dead. Third, Jesus is called the ruler of kings on earth. He was the faithful witness in his earthly ministry all the way to the point of death. He rose from the dead, being the firstborn of the dead. And he is ruler of kings on the earth in his present reign and his future coming. As we'll see in Revelation, John saw and heard a lot about the kings of the earth in Revelation. Uh, the, the kings of the earth are the ones who right now in our day seem to have all of the authority and the power. They seem to be the ones who are holding all the cards. But in the end, all the kings of the earth will be defeated by the Lamb when he triumphs. The ruler of the kings on earth. This is who Jesus is, and this is who has grace and peace for you. Because he gives us grace, we can have confidence even in the midst of political turmoil. Because he gives us peace, we can rest even when peace is taken from the earth, as we see in Revelation 6-4. 
As the nations rage around us, the Lord's anointed sits enthroned above them all and is pouring out grace and peace on his people. Behold, the God of grace and peace, the triune God wants to bless his people. Behold, the God of revelation. Next, behold the worthy Redeemer. Behold the worthy Redeemer. After promising grace and peace from God, John then goes on to call for glory and dominion to be given to Jesus in verses 5 and 6. Look at those verses, the ones we're memorizing together. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So just like before John described Jesus with three titles, here he describes Jesus with three aspects of his work for us. And all three of these aspects of his work make him worthy to receive glory and dominion. Revelation will show us that in the end, Jesus will receive glory. He will be worshipped by all of creation for all of eternity. In the end, Revelation will show us that Jesus will receive dominion. He will reign over all forever and ever. But why is Jesus worthy of glory and dominion? Well, first, because he loves us. He loves us. Now, if I had asked you to name the first 50 words that come to mind when you think of the book of Revelation, I wonder if love would have made the list. Yet, according to Revelation, who is Jesus? The one who loves us. Why is he worthy of glory and dominion? Because he loves us. This is who the Jesus of Revelation is. You know, Revelation as a book is complicated. But even more than that, living in light of Revelation is complicated. Persevering and following the Lamb through this present evil world, enduring tribulation, resisting temptation, bearing witness before the nations. That kind of life is complicated. But in the midst of all that complication, don't miss this simple truth that Revelation wants you to hear. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. The one to whom you have given your life is not indifferent to the cost you are paying to be faithful to him. The lamb you are following is the lamb who loves you. Behold, the God of revelation. How has Jesus shown us his love? He has freed us from our sins by his blood. Jesus has redeemed those who trust in him. 
Like the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, so we all are slaves to sin on our own, and we cannot free ourselves. But like the blood of the Passover lamb paved the way for the Exodus, so we are freed from our sins if we trust in Jesus, the lamb who was slain. If you trust in the death of Christ, you are free. If you trust in the Lamb, you have been freed from your sins by His blood. Don't let yourself be burdened by the weight of condemnation. Jesus has set you free from sin. Don't let yourself believe that you can never change. Jesus has set you free from sin by His blood. And don't let yourself believe that true freedom is found in going the way of the world. No, Jesus has set you free from sin by his blood. Behold the God of revelation. And finally, Jesus has made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. Jesus redeemed us by his blood, in love, in order to make us the people of God. He redeemed us to make us his people. Just as in the Old Testament, uh, the Lord told Israel that he was freeing them from Exodus so that they would be his people. In fact, the phrase kingdom and priests comes from Exodus 19.6. Whenever God made the old covenant with Israel at Sinai, he said, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. It was a title for the people of God in the Old Testament. It's a title for the people of God in the New Testament. Jesus has made us free from our sins by his blood in order to make us his people. Jesus has made his people a kingdom. Uh, Those of us who have been freed from our sins are citizens of Jesus' kingdom. He reigns over us now. The local church is an embassy of the kingdom of God. Jesus has also made his people priests. In Christ, we have access to the presence of God. In fact, we're temples of the Holy Spirit, we're told. And we proclaim the excellencies of God to the nations. We are a royal priesthood. This is who Jesus has made us to be. He loves us. He freed us from our sins to make us the people of God. And because of all of this, he deserves glory and dominion. He loves us. So he freed us from our sins to make us the people of God. And because he has purchased citizens for God's eternal kingdom, he is worthy of glory and dominion for all of eternity. Flip ahead just a few pages to Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. Revelation 5, 9 and 10. Heaven sings, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for... You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then look down at verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power 
and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. There's a seven, by the way. This is the God who is worthy of worship. He is the worthy Redeemer, worthy of glory and dominion. Behold, the God of revelation, the worthy Redeemer. Next, behold the coming King and Judge. Behold the coming King and Judge. Turn back with me to Revelation 1. We've seen several sets of three, and he's John is continuing in this pattern of threes by making three statements about the return of Jesus in verse 7. Look at verse 7 of Revelation 1. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. These three statements are based on two Old Testament passages. One we've read before already in the last couple weeks. The phrase, he is coming with the clouds, comes from Daniel's prophecy about the Son of Man in Daniel 7, 13, and 14, where he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Sound familiar? And all peoples, or that, all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is coming. And he is coming to reign. Every single person will bow to Jesus as king. Every single person, every citizen of every nation, every speaker of every language, every king, every slave, everyone who's alive, who has ever lived, or whoever will live, every person will bow to King Jesus either willingly through saving faith in him or unwillingly by being conquered by him. The other two statements about Jesus uh, and his coming come from Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 12.10 where he says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. King Jesus is coming back, and he is coming back in an unmistakable way. No one will miss it. When Jesus returns, every eye will see him. Everyone will see Jesus. And everyone will see Jesus for who he is. On this Palm Sunday, it's important to note that this coming was what the crowds thought they were going to experience that day that Jesus entered Jerusalem. They shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Yet by the end of the week, Jesus was crucified 
in Jerusalem. And he was mocked for being called the king. When Jesus comes again, John says, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Those who were directly responsible for piercing him, for the crucifixion of Jesus, will understand that day. They pierced the Messiah. And all from every nation who have ever rejected Jesus will know that they chose to rebel against the king of kings. Flip ahead with me to Revelation 6, verses 15 through 17, where John records a vision he saw of this aspect of Christ's coming. Revelation 6, 15 through 17, Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Jesus is coming back to reign, and he is coming back to judge the world. He will punish all who have committed treason against him by the sins of their lives. And he will reward all those who have been freed from their sins by his blood. So you need to ask, when Jesus returns, what kind of a day will it be for you? Will it be a day of rejoicing? Or will it be a day of mourning? Don't wait until it's too late to bow to Jesus willingly. Don't wait until he comes as the conquering king demanding allegiance from every soul before you bow to Jesus. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is going to reign forever. So today, bow to the king as your Lord. Behold the coming king and judge. Behold the God of Revelation. Finally, behold the sovereign God. Behold the sovereign God. After all that John has said in verses 4 through 7, God the Father speaks in verse 8. Flip back with me to Revelation 1 and verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. It's as if God the Father hears all that John has said and then chimes in to say, I am God the Father, and I approve this message. Let's behold each of these titles that God uses for himself. First, the Father says, He is the Alpha and the Omega. When he says that phrase, I am, it harkens back to how God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. Tell them that I am sent you. I am who I am. 
And he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. God is the first and the last and everything in between. He is the ultimate cause of everything. He is the sustainer of everything. And he is the purpose for everything. From him and through him and to him are all things, Paul says in Romans eleven thirty six. Second, the Father says he is the one who is and who was and is to come. We've seen this already. This passage ends like it began, reminding us that God is eternal. And again, in that phrase, the one who is, we hear that name Yahweh, the great I am. God always has been and he always will be. He is the author of all time. He is the author of all history. And then finally, the Father says he is the Almighty. God has all power. God can do anything he wants to do. Nothing is impossible. And no one can stop him from accomplishing his purposes. And so taken together, the Alpha and the Omega, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty, what we have here is a sovereign God. The God of Revelation is the God who reigns over all of creation and over all of history. The God of Revelation is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The God of Revelation is the God who is leading every single detail of the universe and every single detail of your life toward his glorious, purposeful end. And do you know what churches struggling to follow Jesus need? A sovereign God. As we endure the tribulation of this world, we can endure when we remember that God is on his throne. As we face the temptation of this world, we can resist when we remember that God is on his throne. As we seek to bear witness before the nations, we can persevere if God is on his throne. What we need is a sovereign God. The hope that we can have in the midst of following the Lamb through this evil world only comes from a sovereign God. So how kind is it then that God looks at struggling churches who need help in following the Lamb and he opens up the curtain and he peers down and he speaks directly to us and he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. The God that you have trusted your life to is the God who is working all things together for good. The God you have given your heart to is the God who can do anything, for whom nothing is too hard. Behold the sovereign God. Behold the God of Revelation. Our God knows what you need. He knows. He knows. He knows. Our God knows what you need. Need. And what you need most of all is God himself. As you seek to persevere in following the Lamb, you need grace and peace from this God. 
grace and peace from the Father of all time, from the Spirit who is with you, and from Jesus Christ, our example, our Savior, and our King. And you need a King who loves you, who has freed you from your sins by His blood, and who has made you and who has made us a kingdom and priests. You need the king who is coming to reign. And you need the sovereign God who works all things together for his glorious purpose. So behold this God. Trust in him. Lean on him. And worship him. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that we have heard the words of this prophecy. And Lord, I ask that you would give us grace and peace to keep the words of this prophecy. God, you are the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. You are the God that we need. And you are the God who has revealed yourself. You're the God who sent your son to free us from our sins by his blood. You're the God who sent your spirit into the world who is with us now. You're the God we'll worship forever. And Lord, I pray that we would worship you now. And that our hearts would find rest in having all of our attention given to you, that we would find joy in looking not to ourselves or to the world around us, but in looking to you, the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. Love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.